0: We're about to learn about Ben-Hadad tonight, ben Hadad. Back in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, Elijah has inaugurated his replacement and the replacement of the king of Syria and the replacement of the king of Israel. Uh, God is not without his resources. Remember, Elijah got an Elijah complex. Should have saw that coming. Where And it's easy to get. All you have to do is just start scorekeeping. And that happens a lot. The idea is you just kind of feel like... Uh, you're the only one out there doing it. And that can happen in a lot of ways. It certainly can happen in the easiest way, which is you just feel like you're the only Christian in the world. And in some arenas, to be honest, that may be the case. And the Lord has obviously deployed you there not to shrivel up and die, but actually to shine. There are other cases, to be honest, where you want to be full on for Jesus. And there are other people calling themselves Christians, but they're like kind of the yeah that kind of thing again. And I'll be honest, to me, that's even more frustrating and I'm not talking about, well, you know, you do something that's not in my set of conviction base. But I'm just talking about people who are just like so indifferent and apathetic about Jesus. And that just doesn't make any sense at all to me. And I just want to challenge you. If God puts you in that place, do you not get in Elijah complex where you're like, man, where is, where are people that love Jesus? I might say, hi, I'm one. Uh, and so Elijah gets in this place. Where he feels like he 's the only one left, and God says like i excuse me i 've reserved see what happens when I eat so fast uh, I've reserved for myself seven thousand people who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and I remind you, King Ahab, the most wicked king to date in the north, he 's the seventh king of the area of Israel since the uh, split uh, since the civil war back uh, after Solomon. He's, got, he's married to this terrible cookie. And I, I want you to consider, the fact, he's married to the gal just due north of him. Uh, she's the princess of a guy named Eth Baal. You can kind of guess where Baal comes from in that. Uh, and he was the high priest of Baal that went from being the high priest to murdering the king to get the king, to get the throne. Uh, and then that little cookie is his daughter. So you can imagine she's, uh, you know, a chip off the old block. And he marries her. And you can see kind of a political peace happening there through matrimony. Then in the south... That particular, uh, they have a daughter, uh, King uh, Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They have a daughter named Talia, and they marry her off to the king of Judah. So it really appears as if there's this sort of lateral piece through matrimony. However... Just due east of that is the area of Syria. And what God's going to show is that just because you, not every union's a holy union. And just because it's like, oh, shouldn't we all just be friends? Look at there, you know this, because every one of us in this room has people that we want to be friendly with, but we sleep with one eye open if they're near us. And it's like, yeah, let's just be best. But sometimes you open your arms to hug someone and that just gives them more places to stab. Now I'm not talking about being paranoid. I'm talking about being wise. And God never told us that we were to lock arms with everybody and simply coexist. What God told us is, first of all, that we are to be unified as Christians and then seek to go and influence the rest of the world. Not to befriend it, but to impact it, which is a very different thing. So in this particular chapter, now, Elijah has anointed the new king of Syria, but the old king of Syria is what we get in this chapter, and we'll see kind of his beginning and end in this, and he's going to have a few problems with Israel, and then the guy that's going to replace him is going to be even worse, and that's the guy that Elijah anoints to make it even worse. But it's important to note in this particular chapter that though Elijah's kind of in a cave, and he's kind of finding his replacement, and he throws his mantle on a guy named Elisha, Elisha, uh, in that still, God still has other people on call, and if you're like, man, I just feel like there's nobody else out there that's really on the line, in verse 13, we're going to read it as a prophet. Verse 22, we're going to read the prophet. Verse 28, a man of God. And in verse 35, a certain man of the sons of the prophets. Four different times God is going to call somebody into action that we don't even get their name. And then there's that. And it's important to note that the Ben-Chadad of Syria has lessons to learn before Chatzel takes over in that it's important to note that God is still reaching out to this guy who, in the simplest sense, is the biggest spiritual doofus we have in history up to this point, and that's this particular guy, King Ahab. Twice in this chapter, God is going to actually say, and I'm trying to turn off my alarm because that's what that was. Uh, Twice in this chapter, God's going to say, and you shall know that I'm the Lord, to a guy that just watched Elijah take on the 450 prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. You'd have thought that would be enough. And yet God's like, "Ahav, you still haven't got it. You just watched all of the world's gods defeated in front of you, if you will, and yet still there's something inside of you that really still doesn't want to run and jump to me. We'll see that in verse 13, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then in verse 28, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, it's important to note that he's Israeli. King Ahab is Israeli. He's not just some foreigner guy that's kind of brought in and umbrellaed into this religion. He was born into these covenants. Now, some of you, that may be your case. You were born into a religious home where there were people, man, that were, that were on their knees for you. That might not be mom or dad. It might be. It could be grandma or great grandma. Somebody that, you know, that there was like, they sweat and they cried for you. Or some aunt or some crazy person that when they walked in, when you walked in their house, like organ music was playing in the background and all their windows were stained glass. And you're like, this is creepy when you were a kid kind of thing. Well, understanding this that God is still trying to reach out and it's like, how much do I have to do for you to really realize I'm the only one worth handing your life over to? Not some stupid person that's got a really sweet song or some cool movement where everybody's kind of got a shiny pamphlet. And the end of all, God's like, look, I really want you to know that I'm the guy you should be looking for. And understand, that reaches out to every one of us. It's like, how long does it take? How many of these things do I have to defeat? And when I understand that, I understand why God threw ten plagues at Egypt to get Israel out. It wasn't just for Egypt; it was or for uh, for Egypt, though He wanted to clearly show He was the only God of gods there. But it was for Israel too to watch everything else that they could worship be disqualified in front of them and body slammed and totally knocked out on the mat in front of the living God. So they would go, "Well, which one of these guys do you want to choose?" You know what amazes me? How many people will still run to some other sorry thing in exchange for the Lord? No, I'm not talking about, you know, oh look at, you know, you shouldn't be married or you shouldn't go out and find. um, What I'm saying is that you should never trade God in for anything. And when you get to that place where you're going from one bad relationship to the next or one dumb situation after the next, or you keep throwing yourself in the new life circumstances just to find out that you kind of traded God for it. God's like, how many times do we have to do this before you see that I'm really the only thing worth handing your life over to completely? And what's interesting is, though God got Israel out of Egypt, he would, and he did it in ten plagues, he would spend the next 40 years trying to get Egypt out of Israel. And I wonder how much of that's us. Well, so Ben-Chadad has a lot to learn in this chapter. Khatel has a lot to learn about the history that's about to unfold in front of him. Elijah has a lot to learn as he sees these other prophets play out King Achav has a lot to learn because he's going to learn that God himself is the only Lord worth handing his life over to. And we're going to learn a lot about Achav in this circumstance. And Israel's army has a lot to learn, where there's going to be 232 young leaders and their small 7,000 man army against 32 kings and at least 100,000, because we know in one day 100,000 men are going to go down of the enemy. Now, Do the math on that. 7,000 on one side, 100,000 on the other. That means that Israel's army, that's a simple math. Israel's army is only 7% of the army that's going to be taken down. And that's only the guys that go down on the enemy side. We don't know how many still live through that. And yet it'll end, and I warn you, with the challenge in regards to that unholy union and how we should never play that out. So look at it with me, would you please? Chapter 20, verse 1. And I'll let me just say, God, please immerse me in your spirit, come upon me, not in some weird and esoteric way, because, so that all we get is some tingles or shakes or whatever, but God, so that we could all be instructed and challenged and informed and equipped and built up into all the things you intend for this night. And it's such a cool story to watch happen, and, but I pray of all the cool and, and fun things we can watch in the chapter, may we see, please, more than anything... May we see a God who is constantly reaching out to doofuses like us. doofy, Whatever. Lord, and and you know where we can be so thick as to somehow think that the best concoction for life is you plus or something plus you versus you. And Lord, I just, I realize there are things in life we dilute because they're just nasty by themselves. And then there are other things that are so good, anything we add to it just gets worse. Well, you are perfect, and there's nothing we can add to you to improve. May our lives be ones that we realize that handing them over to you is the most intelligent, wise, insane thing we can do. So, Lord, as we go through this chapter, may it come alive, draw us in, and may we get what we're supposed to from it in Jesus' name. Amen. Like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. Now, ben Chadad. Now, who can tell me what Ben means in Hebrew? Excellent, who said that? I don't know, whoever said that. Nice job. Ben means son, to this day. Uh, Ben-Chadad would mean then son of Chadad. That was pretty simple, right? Chadad, by the way, was a false Syrian idol. He was a, In other words, you could be saying, you would be like Ben-Baal would be the idea, only this is the Syrian flavor of that. He's the king of Syria, and he gathered his forces together, 32 kings with him with horses and chariots. You're probably aware a chariot in those days is the tank of today. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Well, if you're going to besiege it, you're probably making war against it. Well, understand Samaria was the capital of the northern empire of the ten tribes. So meanwhile, while Elijah is getting his replacement and anointing the king who's going to take this guy's place, this guy surrounds the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. He sent messengers into the city of Achav. I remember you, the king of Israel, and he said to him, Thus says Ben-Chadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and children are mine, stop. I'm sorry, I'm a boy, I read this and of course my mind initially goes with, do you want to be one that he would take or one that he would leave behind because he's only taken the lovely ones, you know, it's like your ugly kids, you can have them, you know, anyways, sorry terrible rapture. And the king of Israel answered and he said, Oh my lord, oh king, just as you say all that I have is yours. Now notice what he said. Gold, it's mine. Silver, mine. 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 Your loveliest wives, mine. You can keep the other ones. Loveliest children, mine. You can have the rest of them. And I wonder if there's a part of Ahab as he hears these requests, he thinks, this is how I get rid of Jezebel. I don't know. It just—it would be my thought. Anyways, uh, no problems. He, I mean, understand, And King Ahab's response to that is, cool. He's like, I want your gold. I want your silver. I want your—I want the good-looking family. And he's like, yeah, no problem. Go ahead and have it. And you can almost see the King Ben-Hadad looking at it and going, oh, that was real easy. Well, I think we should need to go for a little bit. I mean, let's face it. There was no response. Hear me on this, because I really think there is a... Theme here, or I might say, some kind of an uh, kind of a standard that we can learn from. The enemy of Israel has kind of gone and said, "Oh yeah, well I'm going to take all that," and there was no fight. And because there was no fight, they're like, "Oh." Well, that was easy. Well, then I'm going to go beyond that, and I see that happen so much with the world compared to God's people. Where what happens in the world is like, All I right, I'll tell you what, you shouldn't wear a cross, and don't talk about Jesus, and don't you dare evangelize me, and you put those Bibles away." You know? And we're like, okay. And then like, oh, well, that was easy. Well, then we're going to go beyond that. You go, you can hide in your little stone cave somewhere, and don't you dare. And I realize that if the enemy thinks he can get a little space, he's going to go and go for it. And, you know, if you've been to secondary school, and it looks like all of you are, are kind of, you've been there, kicked out maybe, but you got there. But you know what it's like to see a bully, and this is what happens, right? A bully starts by testing the waters to see your response. Hey, what are you looking at? At least that's when I, back when I was a child, when we rode Pterodactyls to school. That was, you know, come on, we looking, and, you know, you know, hey, what are you looking at? And, of course, me not being saved had all kinds of a litany of responses, and none of which were normally very, very nice. And most of them involved their mother. And, you know, for which then the idea of it was, is it was kind of this, if you're going to kind of play this game, I want you to know from the get-go, I am not backing down just because you think you're all that. And what was interesting is, you would think that would get you into more fights. It actually got you into less, at least in my case. And I think one of the reasons was, it was like the guy that was just like, hey, what are you, what are you looking at? And they're like, nothing, nothing, nothing. They, that's the person. They're like, well, this guy's easy target. Let's just have fun with this little piece of meat. And I realized that we play that game only it's the world and it's life. And the world's like, hey, what are you looking at? Do you really believe that Bible? You don't believe that Bible. Do you really believe the world was covered in water? Do you think it was a worldwide flood? And I'm like, do you believe in an ice age? Sure. you believe the world was covered in ice? Yeah. What's ice made out of? I believe the world was covered in water. You believe the world was covered in water. The only thing we actually argue over is the temperature of it. Is that really where we're going with this? Oh yeah. Well, if you believe in the Bible, what about dinosaurs? Like, what about them? Well, who was Cain's wife? Why would you care? And it's amazing how people are like, it's like Christian pepper spray, you know? They're like, if I ask this question, you're like, no, 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 just stop, 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 you win. I'm so tired of that. So we're like run around going, oh, no. I mean, it seemed like 20 years ago, people were running around afraid of every demon. They're like, oh, no, if I go around a corner and I don't have my Bible in my hand, I'm going to get attacked by a demon. And now it's like, I'm just afraid someone's going to give me a weird look. Because maybe I'm smiling because I'm a Christian. Well, he's like, hey, look it, give me your gold, give me your silver, give me your cuties. I'll take them. And King's like, okay. So he's like, oh, well, let's send something back. Verse five. The messenger came back and he said, thus speaks Ben-Hurad, saying, indeed, I have sent to you, saying, you shall deliver me your silver, your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time and they shall search your house. In the house of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their hands and take it. So the king called all the elders of the land, and he said, Notice, please, how this man seeks trouble. Interesting, now he's going to bring this up. For he sent, for listen, he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. This guy does not even hide where he's at on this, which means he has no shame. And all the others of the people said, okay, well, do not listen or consent. Now, don't miss this, because I learn about the heart of Ahav here. My question is, if our hearts were laid bare... I'm not talking about the makeup we put on them so that we kind of make ourselves look more Christian than we are, or we're actually so, you know, we're not as revolting in the core of us that we really are because we'd all just vomit. But, but he's like, okay, he's like, okay, so you could take my family and you could take my money, just don't touch my stuff. That's where this guy is? He's like, okay, yeah, you can totally take my kids. Now, I guess in his case, taking Jezebel would probably be a favor. But what about us? If somebody starts messing with our family, are we more concerned with that than we are with someone taking our phone? That's got my contacts in it. But those people, those contacts are human beings. Shouldn't you be more concerned about them? And I (laughs) realized, it really shows us, man, that this guy's like, you know, I'm really not as concerned about my peeps as I really am about my stuff. So he kind of goes, now he's like talking to the elders. Hey, what do you think? This guy obviously means trouble. I was happy to give him my family, but he wants my stuff. He wants my flat screen. Come on. My surround sound, that's Bose, man. You can't take my Bose. My headphones are Beats, man. You can't take my Beats. And don't you go near those. Those are Jeezies, you know. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you sent for your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. I draw the line at my stuff. And the messengers departed and brought word back to him. Ben-Hadad sent to him and he said, The gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left in Samaria for a handful of each of the people who follow me. Now, you got the idea he's trash-talking. But what he's saying is that I'm going to send so many people on you that we're going to take so much stuff that, man, by the time we're done, we'll be taking the dust from your houses. There'll be nothing left. Those dream catchers in your windows, we're stealing it all. The stuff you don't even want we're going to take. We are taking both microwaves, the one that's not working in your cellar and the one that is. We are going to steal your recycle bins. I mean, that's where we're going to take everything. And I love this because for the first moment, King Ahab gets some chutzpah and he actually trash talks back. And this is one of my favorite lines in all of scripture when you're talking trash talk in verse 11. So the king of Israel said to him, Tell him, let not one who puts on his armor boast like one who takes it off. I get it. You know, I'm not a big WWE fan although I think there's probably some great acting in there somewhere, I'm sure. But it is interesting, if you're familiar with the sort of wrestling world, and again, I'm not endorsing it, but how big their entrances are. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be like Skalator or, you know, or whatever, but I mean, you could come in, you could be kind of the, the mighty, tiny little thing, but in the end of it all, as long as you have a big show on the way in, you're supposed to intimidate your enemy with that, I guess is the idea. And he's going to look at it. You don't boast before the thing like you will at the end. In the end of it all, if all you've got is talk before the, the, the fight, well, that's, you're going to spend it all now. Don't boast like you do if you've won this thing. Don't you dare think you've won this. So, how confident is Ben-Chadad at this point? Well, take a look. Verse 12. It happened when Ben-Chadad heard this message that he and the kings were drinking at the command post. So they're getting pickled. They're like, ah, we're so worried. Because, let's face it, if the army, if all of the army died, that's not what God says, but if we have 100,000 guys to fight, and you know there's 7,000 at best over there to scrounge up on the northern side, how in the world do you feel threatened? The problem is, they've removed one thing from the equation, the very same thing you will remove from the equation on these problems, and that is God. You remove God from the equation, you are toast. Me too. But you put God in and you're always going to be the majority. God is infinite. His throne is from everlasting to everlasting and his ways have no end. And the moment that the Lord steps in the ring, it really doesn't matter who's on the other side. And it is amazing how we get so much more of our appraisal of our opposition than we actually do of a genuine honest estimate of who God really is. So it's like, man, we are like PhDs in our problems, but we are like not even in reception preschool when it comes to actually understanding God. You're like, God, you don't understand. And God's like, no, you don't understand. So get the idea here. the Chedad heard this message. Hey, don't boast on your way in like you would on your way out, buddy. So the king was drinking at the command post and he said to his servants, get ready, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. He is so confident, this guy, I don't even know if he can ride a horse at this moment. He probably feels like he's riding a horse when he's not riding a horse. Oh, he's going to get him now. Suddenly a prophet, notice we don't have a name. Let's call him Bob just because, after all, it's just not necessarily the name you expect from a Hebrew prophet. But we can say Baba, but... So bother the just the prophet that God doesn't even give a name to, approached King Ahav, Ahav, King of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, do you see? Have you seen all this great multitude? Clearly there's a whole lot of them out there. And by the way, God never actually ignores the problem. He's just not intimidated by it. It isn't like, yeah, I ever try to inform God as if somehow God is actually not as completely aware of how big the problem is. God, you don't understand, God. Bill's due tomorrow. God, you don't understand. That person's psycho. God, you don't understand. It was like God's like, yeah, actually, you, again, you don't understand. God's like, look, at. I, I've seen the great multitude. I actually I actually have already seen the end of this battle, but you haven't. You see how big the multitude is? Behold. I mean, stop and will you just consider this? I will deliver them into your hand today. And the first of two times he says, and you... Shall know that I am the Lord. Now, quick question, quiz time. Verse thirteen. Who is the prophet talking to? Go and say it. Say it with a little confidence. Who is it? Awesome. King Ahav. The the wicked king. The most wicked king up to this to this day. The total and absolute spiritual doofus of doofuses. Doofy. Absolutely. Don't miss this. This guy that's been in ardent rebellion against God, God didn't go, forget you, man. Look at, you want to act like that? We are done. God is still reaching out to this guy. And I'll be honest, some of us, this is our story. God's like, how much do I have to do before you finally go, okay, maybe you're real. Well, that's what Chav is here. And I remind you, he stood on Mount Carmel watching Eliyahu take on the 450 prophets. And I remember he's just like, hey, could you just do this thing so that the, so they could see your wheel and I'm the guy you sent for this and that you're turning their hearts back to you and God goes, ba-blam! And the fire comes from heaven and consumes everything. And everyone's like, the Lord, he is God. And I wonder if Ahab's like, hmm, look at how easily led those people are. Well, I'm smarter than that. Yeah, wait till you try to tell God that later. So the Chav says, look it, our is told by this prophet, we can call him Bob, he's like, you see the problem. And by the way, can I just say, God has this way of even allowing the opposition to become impossibly big. In other words, to the point where the only thing left is a God-sized miracle. And you know why? Because if God steps in at a time where the only thing that will fix this is a God-sized miracle, just maybe you'll give him the credit for it. But Jesus, Lazarus has been dead for four days. By now, he stinketh. Like, what if he had been dead one day? Like, oh, wow, he revived! You know what's amazing? Even if Jesus had waited three days, they could have still said that. How do I know that? Because there are people that actually come up with this, well, they call it a theory, I call it nonsense, what do they call the swoon theory? Have you heard this? You know, when you actually try to rule out Jesus' or God's miracles in general, you create greater miracles. Have you learned that? So here was the idea. Jesus was crucified, his arms ripped out of their sockets, his feet completely dislocated by a nail being driven in between you know, right right above the ankle. Yeah, not a real good sign. He's had tremendous amount of blood loss from the, not only the piercing in his side, where he's experienced everything from, you know, hemohydrosis and hematidrosis in the garden to pulmonary edema. I mean, he's had horrible experiences through all of this. He's had maximum output failure in regards to his heart. It's lost its rhythm, and it just starts to melt in him. It's just a really bad day. And, and he's, he's experienced all of these things, and they're going to wrap him up, you know, in a cocoon, with this aloe in, in linen strips till it cools in the, in the garden. So he's got a body cast on. And what they say is there are those that say, well, the idea was Jesus didn't really die. He kind of just swooned. In other words, he kind of popped into a coma for a little bit. So let's get this. We roll a 15-ton stone over the front of a cave, a newly hewn cave. Jesus, with his arms dislocated, with tremendous amount of blood loss, with his feet dislocated, in a body cast, goes, Oh, I'm awake again. And he rolls to knock over a 15-ton stone. And as he rolls, miraculously the the linen seems to unroll with him as he rolls out beyond that. Even though there's a guard of people that you know they're guarding nobody in, nobody out, and somehow it's dark, so he just kind of slithers by and they don't see it. And then he pops up and, and he kind of rolls more because he can't walk, his feet are dislocated and his arms are dislocated, and somewhere in all of this he gets to the door of the disciples and goes, Hey guys, I'm alive. And they're like, Yeah, you're raised from the dead. That's a greater miracle. Then just saying Jesus rose from the dead. It just seems crazy to me. When people say, Well, it wasn't the Red Sea that Moses walked through, it was the Reed Sea. And we all know that the Reed Sea is only about six inches deep of water. So if there's an earthquake, because it's on a tectonic plane, you know, if there's an earthquake, the ground could open up and it could be dry. And all of Israel could walk through there's no miracle i'm like yeah there's a greater miracle all of pharaoh's army died then in six inches of water how does that work were they all in an army crawling no one thought maybe we should get up and the whole point is is that when we get to these situations where god allows it to be so impossible that we're only stuck with the verse that says with man this is impossible but with me nothing is and you're like, this is impossible. God says, well, then I guess I qualify and no one else. And you're like, well, I was drowning and God just pulled me out, but I was swimming anyway, so he just kind of gave me that little push and I got to shore. You no, know, he kind of almost waits till your lungs fill with water and then God like, pulls it all, and goes, now you're alive. And you're like, no, I really was really close to what? Being fish bait? No, let's be honest. Nobody likes that place. I don't like that place. Because at that moment, I'm not the hero. I'm the damsel in distress. And I'm really not a fan of being the damsel in distress. But to be honest, it's a more honest appraisal in the sight of eternity. So God's like, look it. You see that great multitude? There's no way you can win that without me. As a matter of fact, there's no way you can win that. But I can win that. So I'm going to take them and I'm going to hand them to you today. And you're going to know that I'm the Lord. Achav, notice his response. Achav says, By whom? Who's going to get the credit for this? Who's going to lead them? And he says, and I love this, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces, God wants to use the youth. I still think that that's the case today. God wants to show Not not all of you are snorting ecstasy, having sex with every person you possibly can and experimenting with anything and everything you can. Some of you are like, been there, done that? But the world's like, come on, everybody's doing that. Everyone's cheating on their wives and husbands. Everyone's running of them like, nope, not at all. What's amazing is, if there were a billion Christian marriages out there, and one guy profile falls, they're like, see? They're like, see, that's one in how many? Well, that person represents everyone. Well, in your mind, not in mine. So who's going to lead this? The young men who lead the provinces. He says, Well, who's going to set the battle in order? He goes, well, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you, Ahav, you bonehead. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces. There were 232. And after that, he mustered the people, the children, 7,000 of Israel. So they went out at noon. By the way, could you guess that that's probably not the normal time people attack? Does anyone know why you don't normally start a fight at noon? Because it's hot. And noon like, like you know, in much of the Mediterranean, what happens at about noon? Siesta. Now why do you think that is? Because people are like lazy? Because it's too hot. I mean the reason that started when people were out in the fields. And when people were out in the fields we were like we need to take a break, man, because this is a time we could work so much more if we didn't work in the heat of the day. We even see that in the book of Ruth, by the way. And I know that. When you come in from America where not anybody siestas at any given point, unless you're in Japan where that kinda happens too, it's like you head to a place and it's like, Oh wow, this is cool, we'll get there right at one PM, it's gonna be awesome. We'll just go and we'll kinda tool around and you're like, Wow, everybody left the island. And then it's like five hours later, everyone's like, Oh, buenos dias, you know, or if you know, Buenos Tardes And you're like, Oh, okay, where were you? I was sleeping, man. Why weren't you? Because I'm American. So imagine attacking him at noon. Now, here's the thing. God says, hey, today I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to hand him over to you today. So it seems that that happened in the morning. And it wasn't like King Ahab went, well, then let's wait till later. I love this. When God gives you a promise and you see that it's impossible, God goes, let's just do this. Just do it. So... At noon, he goes, let's go, guys. And meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. Obviously, they didn't see a threat. The young leaders of the provinces went out first, and ben Chadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, men are coming from Samaria. And I remind you, they are. they have besieged Samaria. I remind you, that told us that in verse 1. So they're surrounded the city, people are coming out. And you're sitting, they've come out for peace. Take him alive. Whenever they come out for war, take him alive. And I get the idea. Now, why do you take someone alive that's your enemy? Two reasons. One, for information. Second, for humiliation. You take them and you make sport of them. He is so non-threatened. Let's face it. It's a lot harder to take a person alive than dead. Uh, And I'm not encouraging you here to take an easy route. The whole point is, it's like if you're in war, it's like, you know, shooting somebody, and again, I'm not encouraging And shooting somebody is a lot easier than, well, we need to take them alive. And he's so confident, he's pickled, and as he's pickled, he's like, yeah, he's taking them alive, they're no threat. So these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. It's kind of a one-on-one thing to start with. That's 232 that would fall, plus the army, 7,000, 7,232. So the Assyrians fled, and Israel pursued them. This giant innumerable army flees like a bunch of sissies for a group of guys that were, again, at most, at this point, 7% of their size. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the the cavalry, and the king of Israel went and attacked their horses and chariots. That'll show them. And he killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. Now, that's only round one, and you're probably aware of the fact just because you get a victory in something doesn't mean it's not going to pop up again. You're aware of that, right? So the prophet, and I'm assuming that's the same guy as last time, so that's again maybe Bob, came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself and take note and see what you should do, for in the spring of the year the king of Assyria will come up against you again. So, I want to warn you, you may have won this one, but the battle's not over. So the Syrians, I'm sorry, so the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore, we're stronger. They were stronger than we on the hills. But if we fight them on the plain, surely we'll be stronger than them or they. Now, please understand, to this day, most gods are territorial. At least that's the theology. I'm not saying that's reality. Kind of, it's kind of a simple thing. They're like, you know what? It's like, that's why when you find in the Middle East, the issue is not an issue of politics. It's not an issue of, well, who really has a right to the land? It is an issue of God versus God. And if you, gonna, if you strip it bare, that's what you're going to see. And this is why it's impossible to win with political means. Because if you try to actually talk sense and, you know, from a political perspective to two guys that are convinced their God is real and their gods they think have claim to the land, well, then how in the world are you going to be able to do that politically? Do you think you're going to get their gods to sit down and talk? Getting a round table with them? Well, that's the problem. So what they're saying is it's simple. Well, they had the upper hand because I mean, maybe you heard about that Mount Carmel thing. Apparently he's kind of the hill god. But can I just say this? The enemy's going to talk to you this way. And it's simple. Well, the Lord shows victory when I'm on the top of things. Man, when I'm on top of things, man, God's really, really blessing me. But man, when you hit that bottom. Don't expect victory there. And what we have to learn as we grow in the Lord is that He's the God of the hills and He's the God of the valleys. He will meet you at the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, you can't get deeper and darker than that. He'll meet you right there. He'll also meet you in the highest point in your life. The bottom line is Psalm 24, 1. The entire earth is the Lord's in its fullness. Psalm eighty nine eleven. heaven is yours, heavens are yours, and the earth is yours also. Quoted, by the way, in 1 Corinthians ten twenty six. Psalm 50, verse 12, God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Apparently he doesn't like our cooking. It says, for the world is mine in all its fullness. So clearly he's not talking to Italians. All right. Those for you, Deb. Uh Exodus nine twenty nine, when God actually spreads those hands and thunder happens, and he starts to pour forth these plagues, he says, so that you would know that the entire earth is the Lord's. Exodus nineteen five, he says, All the earth is mine. Deuteronomy ten fourteen, indeed heaven and the highest of heavens belong to God, your the Lord, your God, also the earth and all that is in it. So when people go, Oh, that's the devil's territory, I'm like you're not reading the same Bible I am. This property belongs to God. It doesn't matter whether it's London or America or Saudi Arabia or or Hell's Kitchen or the Devil's Alley in Amsterdam. It's still his property. Now, it tells us in 1 John that the entire earth is under the sway of the wicked one. In other words, he is a con man, and the world is buying his con, but the property is still the Lord's. So they're like, well, sure, they're on the hill, so they've got victory, but get them down in the valley, and they're going to be totally defeated. And some of you know what it's like to be dragged down in the valley. Place where it's like life just doesn't seem worth living, where everything seems futile and empty. Some of you, to be honest, that's where you met him. But the enemy's like, oh, he won't meet you there, and you're like, you know, would you just? I've heard people say when the devil tries to come at you with your with your past, just remind him of his future. Uh, it's like, look at this earth belongs to him, the heavens of heavens belong to him. There's no part of the property that is not owned by my God. And the reason is because he made it. And if he made it, he owns it. So do this thing. Amen. I they're giving counsel again. I remind you to the kings of Syria, king of Syria and his guys. Dismiss the kings each from his position and put captains in their places. Interesting uh, strategy. What they're saying is, remove the politicians and let the soldiers fight the battle. Well, that's kind of, there's wisdom in it. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, then we will fight we'll fight against them on the plain. Surely we'll be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice, and he did so. You get the idea. They're like, hey, let's go back with the same force we had last time, but this time we'll make sure soldiers are leading it. We're going to be a lot more intent. We're going to be a lot more full frontal on this attack. And they're just going to cower. I remind you, you know, it's like we're, we're gigantic. Look at the size of our army, and look at these tiny little wimps. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Assek to fight against Israel. By the way, that's off the Valley of Jezreel. We're, by the way, the Battle of Armageddon will take place. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions. Okay, we're going to give you a little bit of food and go out there with your, you know, frying pans. We've learned that they're good weapons. Thank you, Disney. And they went up against them. And the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. Now, you have to imagine in a situation like this, the goats are not intimidating. Even if they're screaming goats, they're still not intimidating compared to this innumerable army surrounding them. So God, again, in these moments when you really feel like you're just completely outnumbered and overwhelmed, God will send a man. And here's our second one. Then we read in verse 28, then a man of God came. We don't read really he a name. So someone give, bark out a name. Give me any name. Cyril. That's a great name. Cyril, the man of God. Cyril. Is that French? Cyril. He came and he spoke to the king of Israel. And he said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he's not God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. Notice it again. This is two different people who have talked to King Ahav, and both times they're like, Look at I'm going to whoop them on the hills. I'm going to whoop them in the valleys. Not so that I can whoop them, so that you know that I'm the Lord. So they camped opposite each other for seven days. In other words, they're staring at each other. Oh, you're dead. So it was at the end of the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the children of Israel, and I find this interesting, that's a week of staring at an innumerable army going, is that exactly what he said, King? They... Encamped opposite each other for seven days. The battle was joined on the seventh day. And the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians that day. The rest fled into effect. We know there's going to be more. We'll see why in a moment. Into the city. And then a wall fell on 27,000 of them. That's a big wall of the men who were left. Now, is that possible? Absolutely it's possible. If you know the sizes of walls that are the primary pr- uh, protection. We, and it's like, if you don't believe me, walk around York give you an idea, and that's a very, very wimpy model and compared to a lot of these other places, but it was a classic example of walling for protection. And it's like you realize often the walls shot up several stories and then were a couple stories to several stories wide. People lived in those walls, like the harlot. They lived in those walls. So God wants to topple a wall, 27... And then what that tells me is those guys were hiding both from the Israeli army and from the people in the city that they're in. And God's like, well, hell will watch this. You did. There's 127,000 people like that. And I love this because this is just something you don't put in your battle plan. Let's be honest. We're like, okay, this is the deal. We're going to attack them up the front. Let's get them to the wall and then watch the wall fall down. So many, we could circle around it seven days and then blow trumpets. Well, in the end of it all, what we get is, is that God's like, well, I'll just do something you totally don't expect, like kill 27,000 people with a wall. <clears throat> God could have actually just picked up the whole wall and swung it like a cricket bat. Boom! And just, anyways, you get the idea. 127,000 dead. We don't read of a single Israeli soldier dead here. but Just the same. No. then his servant said, Look now, here's our last part to our text. And this is a precursor for what we're going to find next. Remember, I remind you that Elisha had to, uh, to anoint three different guys. And you remember, he says, whoever's going to escape this guy, this guy's going to kill. Whoever's going to escape the king of Syria, the king of Israel is going to escape. Whoever's going to escape that guy, well, then, uh, then your replacement's going to kill. It's like everyone's going to, you know, you're trying to get away. They're going to get killed. And you're like, well, why do they need to get killed? Because there is an unholy union here and God is going to make sure that he severs that. And by the way, God does not want you tapping yourself into a place that bleeds you dry spiritually thinking somehow that's ministry. Then his servant said to oh, him, Look, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please, let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. And we'll go to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waist and put ropes around their heads. It's arguable whether this was like cool bandanas, like they were all trying to look like Guns N' Roses, or whether they put them around their necks, because that's still considered part of their head, like they, were, like they were basically leashed. And they came to the king of Israel and said, your servant ben Chadad says, please let me live. Oh, he says, is he still alive? Oh, he's my brother. Hmm. Here's the danger of an unholy union. But he says he's Sorry. God said, let it go. When a man declares war against God and then someone's like, you know, okay, I was really sorry. Do you take him back? Because what you find is, I can tell you stories of things that ended in murder because of people that were, in essence, had this situation where they would be bad and they would be bad, but then you were like, hey, come on, I'm really sorry. But they never once surrendered to the living God nor pretended to, for that matter. They're like, yeah, but he says he's sorry. Well, of course he's sorry. Look at how miserable he is. Isn't that what it means to be sorry? It means you feel bad. You know, you get drunk, and you run over a whole bunch of children, and then you're like, I'm sorry. Of course you're sorry. You you should feel terrible if you're human. But that doesn't make it right. It isn't like, well, then let's give him a few more drinks and put him behind the wheel again. And there are times where it's time to cut the cord and run. Now, that doesn't have to be just someone romantic, let's be honest. That's often, to be honest, it's most often friends. Somebody that's like, yeah, but we've been through so much together, and yeah, yeah, but they're still dragging you down. It's like Stacey said, if you're actually trying to get across the Thames, and you're like, yeah, but we've been a third of the way through the Thames together, but he's just basically holding my feet. Hey, if you can't make a difference, then get out. Now the men were watching closely to see whether there was any sign of mercy that would come from him and they quickly grasped at his word. When he's like, hey, he's my brother. Your servant, Medhadad, he says, well, go bring him. Then Medhadad came out and when he had come up, he put him, took him into the chariot. So then Hanad said to him, came up into the chariot. Medhadad says, the cities in which my father took from your father I will restore so that you would set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Achav says, I will send you away with this treaty. And I remind you, up to this point, Ahab has been basically making treaties with all of his local people, but he's not following the Lord in doing so. So here he is now. He's got you know Tyre and Sidon nailed with little cookie princess Jezebel. He's got the South with their daughter married to that guy. And now he's got Syria all through sort of political means, but they're not listening to the Lord in this. So he made a treaty with them, sent him away. Now, a certain man of the prophets said to his neighbor, and here's the end of this. By the word of the Lord, strike me, please. Imagine a guy comes up to you and he goes, hit me. The Lord told me to tell you, hit me. Now, first of all, my thought is, thank you, Lord, I'm not this prophet. But then I think, what a weird position to be in to be the guy he's telling that to. Hit me. And the man refusing, like, I'm not going to hit you. Then he said, to well, him, because you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as you depart from me, a lion will kill you. Boy, I tell you, rough times. I'm like, wow, you just, so I hit you or get eaten by, okay, I'll hit you. As soon as he left him, the lion found him and killed him. Oh, he's a man of his word. He found another man. Now, I imagine if it was any time close and I watched this happen with the first guy, I would hit him hard. How about you? If I just watched this guy become like, you know, lion chow, he's like, hit me. You don't have to say it twice, man. Bam. Is that enough where you wanted to get? And you're like, what in the world is this guy asking for? So, again, he found another man and said, strike me, please. At least, let's be honest, at least he's polite. Would you please punch me? So the man struck him, inflicting a wound, and the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road. He disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. I guess you don't recognize him if you've got a bandage over your eyes. So the king passed by and he cried out to the king and he said, and you've got to be careful when a prophet sets you up like this. Your servant went out in the midst of battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me. And he said, guard this man. If by any means he's missing, your life will be for his life, or else you'll have to pay a talent of silver. Now, first of all, which one of you would actually say okay to that agreement? Here's a guy. And if he runs away, i got to kill you, or you've got to give me some money. And apparently the guy, you know, that was the, and again... Apparently this is a common enough for the king to go. Oh yeah, that happens. So while the servant was busy here and there, he was gone. So in other words, I don't know, I was like texting someone and I was looking at this really cute meme of a dog kind of playing with a duck, and you know. And then another was like, where did that guy go? While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king said to him, So shall your judgment be? You've decided it. Interesting, because the king appears to say, you die. So he hastened to take his bandage off from his eyes. Surprise! And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life will go for his life and your people for his people. So the king went back to his house, pouting, sullen and displeased. That is such a sudden way. To, pardon me for saying this. It's a very British way of saying this, isn't it? He went to his house, sullen. Displeased. He was displeased. He was like, Oh, this is this is not very pleasing to me. He was bumming and heavy. And he came to Samaria. This chapter ends, by the way, in a place where God's like, Look at I promised you I'm gonna I'm gonna totally annihilate in this victory, and I need you to follow me in this and I need you to clean up. Now you'd think, Well, isn't this a good thing? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Isn't he like you're showing mercy to someone, isn't that decent? Here's the point. God's like, I've already appointed this guy and this guy has declared war on you. And then he gathered troops and he declared war on you again. What do you think is going to happen on a third time if you give this guy a chance? And he's like, look, it, you need to recognize when I say victory, I mean victory. But understand, it's kind of like this. If, if you were in a situation where smoking gave you cancer, and I'm not saying it doesn't, there's not a relationship, but I'm saying that you put one cigarette in your mouth and you knew that you were going to get cancer back like this. And God's like, I'm going to deliver you from cancer. And you're like, well, how many cigarettes can I smoke after this? God's like, put away all of the cigarettes. If one of them can do that. You know, what's interesting is when God truly delivers you from something, the last thing we should want in our right mind is to want to go back to anything that hints at it. It is amazing how quickly someone will actually go back to something that will get him back to hep C or get him back. I mean, we know a guy who actually comes uh, occasionally on the afternoons on Tuesday. He's completely full HIV positive. And he's been that way since the 80s. But if you ask him, I mean, he's given his life to Christ. The Lord's done amazing things in his life. But if you were to ask him, do you want to go back to any of those things? He's like, man, that's the last thing I'd ever want to do is to go back to any of those things in play around with that nonsense anymore i mean you know only got that you got hep you got all kinds of fun things for it the whole point is is that when the lord delivers you from something why in the world would you want to run to go back to that nastiness and unify yourself with something that's going to drag you down back into that disease and i'm just here to say that what we're left with at the end of this chapter is it'll be the end of ben <laughs> that that'll be it God's like this guy's done Because when I want to take something like this out of your life, I want to take it out of your life for good. Now, I'm not talking about God not restoring a marriage. Praise God God can restore a marriage. But in all of those cases, understand, God wants to kill old people and give new people because old people make terrible marriages. And there are certain situations where the person has no interest in changing, and you're like, I feel like I'm so close. But in the end of it all, if that so close is dragging you down into a place where you just... Aren't walking with the Lord like you should, maybe give God a chance to use somebody else. Because He's not required to use you to save anyone. And again, don't get that Elijah complex, because I remind you, that's how that started. But it is, but if I don't talk to him, who will? Let me remind you, you're not the deciding factor. God is the deciding factor. And he knows who to use at what time. Don't stop praying. But pray for people and listen to the Lord because you know that if you have a broken heart and you're full of compassion but you have no wisdom, you will put yourself in very terrible places. Because there's only one person who died for him. And there's only one person that needs to die for him. And that's Jesus who took all of their sins upon him, died on that cross, was buried, and on the third day rose again. And you know that. And when we were raised in newness of life with him, receiving Jesus, not just as Savior, but as Lord, he tells us some of that stuff you're just going to need to walk away from. But I want to remind you as we go to prayer, God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead ofs. For everything that you hand over to him, he will replace with something better. I have never given to the Lord and gotten a bad deal for it. But that's your choice. And I realize there's some people that even just thinking about their name or putting their image in our face hurts us. I mean, we genuinely hurt. But I have watched in this room people that have been really, really horribly affected by people because they have a great heart. But in that great heart, they're willing to follow their heart instead of follow the Lord who says, Hey, you need to just give me space in this. And I want to pray for you because I'll be honest, of all the lessons I've ever had to learn in ministry, the most painful, without a shadow of a doubt, has been learning how to tem- to temper compassion with wisdom. Because when you're compassionate on someone, you just your pure heart is just, you know, you're like, you would just assume everybody else is as pure in their intent as you are. and You come into this thing and you just want to love someone and you want to care for them, And sometimes people just don't understand that. And there are times if we were careful enough to listen to the Lord, because we're like, come on, my my intentions are so good. Surely God's going to bless that. But if our intentions are so good that we're not listening to the Lord, there's a weird disobedience in care if we're not careful. And I just want to pray that God would give us wisdom to see the cancers in our life And those things that we would be really willing to say, all right, Lord, I don't even want to let go of this. But if you really want it gone, will you do it, please? And give him wisdom and not fight him over it. And there are other things that the Lord won't want to bring in. And in bringing in, he's just going to bless you. Let's face it, if you were dying of cancer and God just took away the cancer, you would just feel great for not having cancer. But that doesn't mean you're totally healthy. Just means you 're not cancerous, and when the Lord replaces he doesn 't just remove when he replaces he replaces with health and that's that is not just awesome that is amazing and for some of you in this room, maybe you 're facing something right now that seems insurmountable, it seems so huge. All you can do is freak out when you think about it because you 've got a really careful study. You've done a real careful study of the problem, but not necessarily have a genuine, honest appraisal of the problem solver. Well, today I'm here to just say as we go to prayer, may the Lord sequester your focus like he should. And may you respond accordingly and give you the courage to recognize that the battle's not yours, it belongs to him. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for learning from this guy. That how many times you are so patient to reach out to somebody like Ben Chedad, uh, and to show that he really doesn't stand a chance, but to reach out to Achav, this king who is such a doofus, like me. And I wonder how many times a day you were showing me that you are the Lord. And you're the only thing worth me handing my entire life over to. I don't know how many times you are proving to me that you are the Lord up on every hill in the highest peak but also deep in the deepest valley. And I know there are some who their walk with you is tightest in the deepest and darkest places of life. There are others who seem to actually prosper more on the higher hill. But I'll be honest, Lord, the greatest thing is walking right with you. Now, I'd rather not be a valley guy when it comes to that, but I want to be somebody that pleases you with my surrender. And in pleasing you in my surrender, that we would just be like, yes, God, yes, please. have all of me so the ben in our lives those things that have declared war on you and as a result of that when we are walking super solid with you they declare war on us the only way we are actually going to keep peace with them is to have some form of convoluted compromised walk with you change them or change them out And Lord, in that, please, may our walk with you be the fundamental, most important, essential, central thing in our lives, even as it is in yours. As Jesus died on the cross because our relationship with you is the most important thing. As he paid for all of our sins at the cross because our relationship with you is the most important thing. When he was buried and buried all of our guilt with that because our relationship with you is the most important thing. And when he rose again to show that death was conquered and a new life was offered, you did that because our relationship with you is the most important thing. May we respond in like manner, letting your, our relationship with you be our most important thing. And let everything else fall into line with that, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.